0: Hi all! This is a bonus episode coming out on the Physical Attraction feed. The topic is even less related to physics than usual, but since it's extra and bonus and all this sort of thing, I hope you'll forgive me. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, this wasn't the first podcast I ever made. In fact, I scripted and recorded about 20 episodes of a show, Autocracy Now, on Historical Dictators including Commodus Stalin, and Huey P. Long, who you may not have heard of, but who is an American southern demagogue from Louisiana. Just fascinating stories there. It's not something that I'm an expert in, just something that I really, really love reading about. But then I started the physics show, and it became clear to me that it would be impossible to juggle writing, recording, scripting, and funding two podcasts a week, and doing my PhD in physics, and writing for Singularity Hub and other websites to supplement the meagre income you get for doing a PhD. But I still had all of these episodes recorded, with no idea when to release them, and they were just gradually gathering dust in a corner of my hard drive, and it took me months of effort to research and record them all. So I've decided that now I will start to release them, on a bi-weekly basis, via the Autocracy Now feed. You can subscribe to that feed by searching for Autocracy Now, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, and via www.autocracynow.libsyn.com, that's the website to visit for that feed. By the time the last episode comes out, in 19, if anything, I think I'm only going to be busier at that point, so I don't know if the show will be able to continue beyond that point. We'll have to see what happens. But I hope you enjoy the sister podcast while it lasts, and Physical Attraction will keep going for some time to come yet. To save time, I'll put out any episodes, updates, concerning either show on this main feed, but for the rest of the Autocracy Now episodes, subscribe to that feed. Okay two bonus episodes. The first is about the Roman Emperor Commodus. The second is the first in what became a 14-part epic series on the life of Soviet dictator and mass-murdering tyrant, Stalin. I hope you enjoy them, and if you do, subscribe to Autocracy now as well. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, www.physicspodcast.com. You can always contact me there, and it's great to hear from you guys. Okay, enjoy the show. The skyline of the Georgian village of Gori, such as it is, was dominated by a vast medieval fort, the Guristike. It is a multi-layered thing, bringing to mind the guard towers in Constantinople. Its buttresses are small and close together, giving the whole a cookie-cutter appearance. It still stands today, in spite of various invading armies attacking the fortress over the years. In the shadow of this fortress, a familiar scene unfolded. One echoed countless thousands of times in Gori itself, and in the many villages like it all across Georgia, across all impoverished parts of the world, for many hundreds of years. The scene is sadly all too familiar to the participants. A man, Bessarion, is in the process of becoming a drunk. Perhaps, if we're fortunate enough to be unfamiliar with this process, in our own lives and in our own minds, there's a strong dividing line between us upstanding members of society and those who have fallen outside of it. Maybe, if we give it thought... We imagine some catastrophic event has propelled them into their current crisis, and recovery is unlikely, if not impossible. In reality, it's often a gradual procedure. You can hold things together for quite a long time before they finally fall apart. Once, this man ran a modestly successful business making shoes. He was respected in the community. His drinking problem had started in earnest when the first two sons had died in infancy, and he felt that he'd been cursed by a local idol. When his first son grew up healthy, it receded. But when the fell on hard times, he was forced to work in a factory, and the drinking returned. He became known as Crazy Beso to the people of the local village. Keke, his wife, would directly link the drinking to the end of the good years of business, saying, quote, his hands started shaking so that he couldn't stitch shoes, end quote. Years from now, Bessarion will die destitute, owing debts to numerous creditors. He'd die of cirrhosis of the liver. Right now, though, he still has a job, and a wife, and a son that he sees. It's this subject that his drunken eye so often focuses on on his son, and on his wife. He's been known to return home in a rage, accusing KK of seeing other men. He beat the boy like a dog, and would yell, "'Where is KK's little bastard? Hiding under the bed?' At the time this occurred, the boy was four years old. There's a story that, in an attempt to protect his mother, he threw a knife at his father. This latest argument was different, however. This was about the young boy's future, whether he should be educated or not. "'The boy should pay his own way,' Bessarayan insists. "'We cannot continue to pay for his education.' In a rage, and against his wife's protestations, he drags the boy from Gori to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, to work in a shoe factory. There he will earn a meagre wage for petty manual duties while he learns the craft of shoemaking, and his entire life will be mapped out for him by circumstance, just as his father's was, and his father before him. That's the way things go in the permanently feudal, rural countryside in these cities, where poverty is the basic state of existence and even survival can be a struggle. More often than not, you fill in the minor details of your life, which is guaranteed to be of no historical importance. Or at least that's how things would have gone if Bessarion's will had held. Instead, KK managed to contact some local priests who ran the school where the boy was studying, and he was returned to Gori to complete his education, while Bessarion's cycle of menial labour and alcoholism continued until his death. And of course the boy, now to complete his education, was Joseph Jugosvili, who would later become known as Joseph Stalin. Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now, the show about the lives of historical autocrats. In reading the story about Stalin's boyhood, I'm reminded of countless stories like it. If you're willing to see them for what they are, history has a great many pivot points, little events that seem of no consequence at the time, which had to happen precisely the way they did, for the world to be as it is now. Maybe you can think of such coincidences in your own life that seem to lead to greater changes, I know I can. The momentous is not always signposted, and it's easy sometimes to look at the way the world builds such elaborate citadels and such small foundations and think this was preordained, this had to happen. A few months after he returned to Gori, young Joseph was knocked down by a horse and cart. He might have been playing chicken in the road with some of his school friends. It could easily have been a fatal accident, instead the boy was merely injured. These are dispassionate facts but our minds want to attach symbolic meaning to them, fate or even providence. In this way we justify the way things have worked out and allow ourselves to believe that if we don't live in the best of all possible worlds, we're at least in the upper half but it's kind of hard to marry the idea of providence with the life of joseph stalin regardless of what it became at first a lot of idealistic people subscribe to the tenets of marxism and communism though the worldview that pits the industrial worker against the bourgeoisie in an eternal class struggle is oversimplified there's a notion of justice inherent in the original writings that makes the system attractive this explains why even today after various large scale attempts to establish a communist society have all devolved into autocracies it's still attractive to a fringe of intellectuals and students Stalin would become the ultimate embodiment of the fundamental flaws in this ideology that have meant all large-scale attempts to establish a communist society have turned into autocracies or dictatorships of some kind or another. Marx's philosophy is dripping with destiny. The inevitable outcome of inequality is revolution, and the inevitable outcome of revolution is, eventually, socialism. If there's such a thing as destiny, as these ideas were being distributed in Europe and Russia, it was not particularly concerned with the road to paradise. To truly understand the Russian Empire in this time period would require another podcast series, or several, so I have to sketch with a broad brush, and I want to apologise throughout this, because there's so much interesting history I'm going to have to miss out on, just so that I can get back to the main narrative of Stalin's life, so hopefully you'll either forgive me, or even better, look up as much as you can about this stuff, because it really is wonderful. So like all vast empires, under the monolithic surface there was intense division. As well as ethnic Russians, there were Finns, Georgians, Tatars, Turks, and any number of other nationalist dissident groups who often wanted territorial independence for their countries. The secret police under the Tsars, the Okhrana, regularly exported thousands of dissidents to Siberia. The economy was principally agricultural. For many hundreds of years, the system of serfdom was the way of life for the vast majority of the population. The serfs were farmers who were tied to working on the land of the boyars, or lords. They were not allowed to move or seek alternative employment, and in return, the lord was obliged to provide them with protection and a plot of land they could work for their own personal improvement. Serfdom was a dominant system in Western Europe for hundreds of years, but it went into a slow decline that started with the Black Death. In one of those rare upsides to catastrophe, the Black Death allowed the survivors to negotiate a better deal for their labour because there was just less competition, so many labourers had died. By the 18th century, most of Western Europe had moved away from serfdom, but it still dominated in Russia. In the meantime, the minority of the population that lived in cities gradually started to industrialise and catch up with the rest of Europe, but the pace was slow. In part, this is just down to the geography of such a vast empire, more than any specific mismanagement or incompetence. The autocratic Tsars were often repressive and conservative, with strong ties to the dominant Russian Orthodox Church, which emphasized the divine right to rule of the Tsar. The Tsars themselves offer an interesting study in autocracy and its effects on the progress of state. Now, a Tsar with a mind towards liberal reform would be succeeded by a Tsar with a mind towards conservative repression, with the net result that lasting change wasn't often enacted. Another interesting aspect of the Tsars was their motivations behind conducting these liberal reforms. So, it's the question, do the Tsars feel that there's an innate sense of justice and fairness that they want to establish? That some Tsars feel that way and others don't? Or, are they merely disagreeing about the best way to maintain their hold on power? Do you go for repression, or do you go for concessions? There was a perception in the minds of the educated in Russia that they were lagging behind the powers of Europe that were benefiting economically from the Industrial Revolution. In an attempt to resolve this problem, Tsar Alexander II emancipated the serfs in 1861. That meant that serfs were now allowed to own property, own businesses, and marry whomever they wanted without the lord's consent. They could move around too if they wanted, if they had the financial means. He described this move as quote, "abolishing serfdom from above before it can abolish itself from below." Already, the Tsars were attempting to preempt revolution. The idea was that this would stimulate a lot of them moving into the cities and becoming an industrial workforce, and that would drive the modernization that they wanted Russia to have. However, much like the similar emancipation of slaves in the USA around this time, the institution continued by other means. In many cases, the newly freed serfs were forced to rent their land from wealthy landowners. The freed peasants had to pay a special tax to landowners and the government as a form of compensation for the power and influence that the rich people had lost. When political parties like the socialist revolutionaries would later argue that serfdom had just been replaced by wage slavery, they had a point. For many of the serfs, they were free in name only. In the cities, the intelligentsia and the educated few were divided about the best way for the country to progress. Some wanted liberal democracies of the kind that were being established in the US and some of the countries of Western Europe. Others were Marxists and socialists. Now, they all realised that there was a vast amount of anti-establishment discontent amongst the peasants and the ex-serfs, but there was constant disagreement about how to harness this as a revolutionary force. Where, for example, does an agricultural peasantry fit into Marx's industrial proletariat and bourgeoisie class structure? There's just no room for the peasants there. I mean, are they industrial workers, or are they bourgeoisie? They're sort of neither. Alexander II himself was assassinated by socialist revolutionary terrorists in 1881. His successor, Alexander III, as you might expect, was more repressive and autocratic again, and he centralised power in the office of the Tsar, and reversed many of Alexander II's liberal reforms. Tsar Nicholas II, his son, would continue broadly in the same vein. As I've said, this era of Russian history is just fascinating, as any transition of government from one form to another is fascinating and I feel bad that I can't do it full justice without another series of episodes, but I hope that I've managed to provide the sketchiest of sketchy backgrounds for our focus on Stalin. Stalin's Georgian upbringing has often been cited as instrumental in his development. His fellow communists would see him as boorish, crass, even violent. A lot of them were intellectuals, like Lenin, who was a lawyer, and had never even met that many people of Stalin's social class. Now, for his part, as a boy, Stalin loved the literature of his native country. One of his favourite books growing up was Alexander Kazbegi's The Patricide, Its hero is Koba, an example of a Georgian mountain abrek, which for more civilised Russians means mountain bandit. In Kazbegi's book, at least, the abreks live by a code of honour. Innocent people are not to be harmed, but the abreks' enemies must be pursued to the death. There's an element of Robin Hood in these stories, with them stealing from the rich and giving to the poor on occasion. Koba, the abrek, declares, I'll make their mothers weep of his enemies. Revenge is a key aspect of the story. The Abrax, fiercely independent, resist Russian imperial power in the 1840s as it extends into the mountains of Georgia. Stalin chose a nickname at school that he would use well into his revolutionary career, and of course it was Koba. Age 15, Stalin went to Georgia's capital, Tbilisi, where he continued his education at the spiritual cemetery. Keke, his mother, correctly recognised that the priesthood offered the only form of social mobility in their lives, saying later, quote, I always wanted him to become a bishop. When the bishop came from Tbilisi, I couldn't tear my eyes off him in admiration. Tbilisi, unlike Gori where he had grown up, was practically cosmopolitan, a melting pot where all of the various ethnicities and cultures of the Russian Empire collided, from Tatars to German immigrants. He earned the money to pay for his tuition by singing in the local cathedral. The imposed regime in the seminary was strict, although not uncommon to schools like it. The historical curriculum all praised the Tsars, and while the classics like Plato were studied, most modern Russian literature, and anything with a sniff of independent Georgian identity, was strictly banned. Anyone who broke the rules could be punished by solitary confinement. Stalin himself was punished by a spell in the solitary confinement cell for reading Victor Hugo, the celebrated French author of Les Miserables, and other texts. Now, the book in question wasn't even that political. It was The Toilers of the Sea, which is a fairly straightforward rip-roaring adventure story about a Guernsey fisherman. As ever, you feel like with this type of authoritarian censorship, it only makes the content of the book seem all that more enticing. At the same time, the school was filled with bright young boys like Joseph, many of whom were poor and provincial as he was. They fell from being the kings of the streets in their local towns, to straining under the harsh discipline and intense religious focus of the, se- of the seminary. Maybe as a result of this, the school had a history of rebels. In 1886, a seminarist from Gori even went so far as to direct the to death. Now many of these rebels would go on to become important figures in Marxism. It's interesting to think of Stalin at the school full of would-be rebels and revolutionaries. From Gori he came to a multicultural city and gradually became more politically aware. In the Marxist system where the industrial workers are forever exploited by a cruel and uncaring upper class, did young Stalin see shades of the injustice and inequality that kept most of the citizens of Gori and their economic change with little hope of advancement? The other great Bolshevik, Lenin, came from a broadly middle-class background. He became radicalised at university, translating the Communist Manifesto into Russian, but he never really moved in the circles of industrial labourers that are the focus of Marxism. The cruel capitalist world that's exploitative that was presented by Marx was surely closer to Stalin's experience than Lenin's. It might seem strange that the repressive Tsarist regime of Russia, which is kind of reflected in miniature by the school Stalin attended, allowed Marxism to flourish to the extent that it did. But in Georgia, at least, the authorities were more concerned with nationalist movements who wanted Georgian independence... Not that Joseph was immune to this in his early years. While he was in the seminary, he composed poetry, some of which was published, which includes such stirring verses as, quote, "Flower, O my Georgia, let peace reign in my native land, and may you, friends, make renowned our motherland by study." End quote. Joseph stopped writing poetry as his education advanced, becoming more distant from the authorities. A report from the local inspector in 1898 described him thus. Quote, in general, pupil Zhugasvili is rude and disrespectful towards persons in authority and systematically fails to bow to one of the teachers. End quote. In eighteen ninety nine, as the last of the final examinations was about to be sat, Joseph disappeared from the seminary. While qualifying from the school would have likely given him the chance to go to a Russian university, there was no financial support system in place that would have made this idea practical. Certainly his family would be unable to support him. At the same time, maybe it is not a stretch to imagine that he was disillusioned with the educational system in general, feeling that he'd learnt more from the independent study of European literature and Marxist texts that he'd been punished for in the seminary. I think that the few years that Stalin spent at the seminary solidified all the aspects of his character that had already begun to develop. While his personality might have been shaped, as all of our personalities are, by his parents and where he grew up in his early school days, it was at the seminary that it took on the revolutionary, anti-establishment character that would define his early life. It was here that he decided Marxism, with its dreams of an international revolution, and not Georgian patriotism or some other ideology, would define how that anti-establishment feeling transformed into action. A lot of people decide what they want to finally do at school. For others, it takes a lot longer to work out. But Stalin already knew that he wanted to become a revolutionary. By the end of the year, Joseph had found employment in the physical observatory in Tbilisi, which involved recording measurements of the weather and temperature. It was the only proper job he'd have before becoming ruler of the Russian state. By the turn of the century, he was living in a small flat with two other students, an ex-school friend from Gori and one from the seminary all of whom shared anti-establishment beliefs. They pursued the early formation of revolutionary views after hours. Around this time, Joseph was impressed by a talk given by one Lev Kamenev, who he would later work alongside as a leading Bolshevik. His life at this point reminds me a bit of the life of someone who's chosen to pursue an artistic dream. He's taking on employment that wouldn't tax him, spending time with like-minded friends, frantically working to be heard in a very specific scene after hours. Like all revolutionary movements, especially in the early stages, Marxist ideas had almost as many distinctive interpretations as individuals who read about them. It seems that Stalin came into conflict with his fellow revolutionaries, not so much for ideological differences, as being personally difficult to get along with. Robert Service reports that his fellow revolutionaries, quote, could not stand his personal capriciousness and tendency towards despotic behaviour, This, combined with a police raid on the observatory that left him without a permanent home, resulted in him leaving Tbilisi and moving to other regions of Georgia as a young agitator. New members of the Marxist movement were tasked with making contact with specific workers and agitating against their employers to accelerate the inevitable workers' revolution. In the course of encouraging general strikes, marches and protests, a large demonstration Stalin was involved in ended in violence when the police opened fire on the workers' mob. The subsequent investigation by the Iraner, the Tsar's secret police, resulted in Stalin's arrest and imprisonment in Batumi, Georgia. This violent incident appears to have hardened Stalin's resolve further. Prior to this, he was reluctant to advocate violent struggle in his writings in Marxist newspapers, but afterwards he said that the tone was altered. As ever, violent repression by the authorities just encouraged revolutionaries further. By this point, Stalin had become established in the underground community of committed revolutionaries, and he was fully engaged in their lifestyle. A constant game of cat and mouse with the Okhrana characterised their days. Revolutionary figures would regularly be captured and arrested for minor offences, only to escape or be released and return to work. Stalin's first arrest occurred in Georgia in Baty in 1902. After a year in prison, he was exiled to Siberia. A cellmate of him said at this time, He was completely imperturbable. We lived together in the prison for more than half a year, and not once did I see him get agitated, lose control, get angry, shout, swear, or in short, reveal himself in other aspect than complete calmness and his voice exactly corresponded to the glacial character which those who knew him well attributed to him. End quote. After a year, Stalin was transferred to Siberia, the icy and remote home of the political prisoners. More often than not, the would-be revolutionaries were shipped to Siberia but held with minimum security, with authorities trusting to the remoteness of the location to ensure they couldn't escape. But Stalin was not the only revolutionary to escape exile, although it took him two attempts since apparently the first time he didn't wrap up warm enough and was recaptured with frostbite. When he returned to Tbilisi, it was to find his political party, the Social Democratic Workers' Party, in the midst of a schism. It was a relatively small minority of the revolutionaries, but even within them, there were constant ideological battles. Lenin, the party leader, was more concerned with ideological purity than some of his comrades were. He wanted the movement to be centrally controlled, with a single orthodox vision for the revolutionary future. There were practical reasons for this, beyond just accumulating power. A movement that's internally divided is harder to present as an alternative to the current system, and easier to infiltrate by the secret police. Stalin himself would be accused of being an Ocrana double or even triple agent on many occasions. Lenin was also unhappy with working with the middle classes to overthrow the Tsar. Others in the past, such as Trotsky and Martov, were more willing to tolerate difference in opinion. They wanted a broad, popular movement that was less obsessed with the finer points of ideology, and more of a loose association, one that would be willing to work with other socialists. Lenin and his hardliners, though, became known as Bolsheviks, and the rest of the party as Mensheviks. Even this naming was a propaganda coup for Lenin, because Bolshevik means majority, and Menshevik means minority, even though that wasn't always really the case. The Bolsheviks wanted a violent overthrow of the state, while the Mensheviks were happy to work with liberal opponents of the Tsarist regime to establish a socialist paradise. The split, which had been rumbling for some time, was formalised at the Second Party Congress in 1903. It reminds me a little of the early events in Stalin's own life, because the party was hardly a vast revolutionary force. Only 57 delegates showed up to the Congress, and the authorities in Britain paid little mind to these overly serious men who squabbled in cafes, bars, and fishermen's clubs. Fledgling political parties were splitting all the time, as anyone who's seen Monty Python's Life of Brian and understands the subtle difference between the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea can tell you. As with Stalin's later life, only later history gives this event a sense of grand historical significance. It didn't take Stalin long to pick a side in the fight. He wanted to side with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Maybe you can see the beginnings of an autocratic tendency here. Maybe Stalin was just frustrated with the constant debate and inaction that came with having a wide and less disciplined party. Maybe it was just that the Bolsheviks were more happy with funding their idea through organising bank robberies. In order to prove himself to doubting fellow Bolsheviks, though, first he had to denounce the desire for a separate Georgian political party, which clearly went against against Lenin's desire to have a uniform, centralised party. Stalin published his credo, essentially recanting what he'd said about a separate Georgian Marxist party, and he was allowed to stay within the Bolsheviks. He was still an advocate for the interests of all separate nations under the Russian Empire to have their own unique views represented, arguing with those who thought that the revolution would inevitably do away with all national divides, leaving only a class divide behind. This was an ideological problem that the socialists found very difficult to resolve. And, in a sense, while they were squabbling, the revolution happened without them. Tensions between Russia and Japan had been growing for around half a century at this point. Border territories between the Russian Empire and the Japanese sphere of influence, including Manchuria and Korea, were under considerable dispute. Negotiations over the territories broke down when it became clear that both sides were building up militarily, and Nicholas II delayed the negotiations and refused to compromise. Nicholas was probably not a warmonger, although he might have recognised the benefits war can have in boosting patriotism, but instead it seems more likely that he just expected Japan to yield to the vast might of Russia. Now this didn't happen, and war was declared after the Japanese launched a surprise attack on the Russian fleet in 1904. The war, while fascinating, is not our focus here, but the History of Japan podcast has an excellent set of episodes about the Russo-Japanese War. The key point for Stalin's life is that the Russians experienced a series of humiliating defeats. This exposed the Russian state as weak and ineffectual, and discredited the Tsar and many of his ministers. And, with this conflict rumbling away in the background, the workers began to strike. In the winter of 1904-5, strikes hit the entire capital city of St. Petersburg. As many as 150,000 workers may have been out on strike. On the 22nd of January, a peaceful march, headed by Father Gapon, an Orthodox priest, marched on the Winter Palace. The Tsar wasn't even there, having moved out of the city a few days before. They bore with them not a list of demands, but a petition, asking for better working conditions. This was well within the regular political tradition of Russia. The Tsar was supposed to be the father, the carer of the people. People would quite often come to him with petitions, hoping that he would alleviate their suffering. There were many Tsarist loyalists in the march. It wasn't really an attempt at revolution. Indeed, the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks condemned it for having no clear political aims. Lots of people thought that the Tsar had been led astray by corrupt ministers. He couldn't possibly be aware of the conditions outside. But chaos broke out when some of the Winter Palace guards fired on the crowd, apparently after ordering them to stop marching. Hundreds, possibly thousands of people were killed and injured in the ensuing violence and stampede. This event became known as Bloody Sunday. Of course it was a propaganda coup for the revolutionaries. Now they could point to evidence of brutal czarist repression. Even for conservative traditionalist Russians, it was hard to justify the image of peaceful marches being fired upon outside the czar's palace, and it contributed to his unpopularity. Even outside the city, the peasantry began to lose their faith in the czar as their friend and protector. The strike spread throughout the country. As many as half of Russia's industrial workers were striking, and violent clashes between strikers and police in various cities left more dead. The workers were joined by radical students as the universities closed, and returning soldiers from the defeats in the Russo-Japanese War became involved, with naval mutinies, including the famous one on the battleship Potemkin breaking out. As the situation escalated, this looked like nothing less than the revolution that Russian Marxists had been predicting for so many years. Stalin, back in Tbilisi, threw himself into organising strikes and demonstrations. Workers formed their own councils, or Soviets, which demanded access to the levers of power. Stalin was convinced that the Tsarist government would soon be violently overthrown, but it was not to be. The Tsar clearly had to take action, and simple repression was just going to lead to more incidents like Bloody Sunday and escalate things. In October, the Tsar offered liberal reforms in the October Manifesto. Apparently, Nicholas was not keen on these reforms. He wanted to establish a military dictatorship, but his first choice as dictator threatened to shoot himself in the head if the manifesto was not proclaimed, so he didn't really have a choice. The October Manifesto promised the Russian people civil liberties. They'd have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religious belief. There would be an elected parliament or Duma that would have legislative powers. All men would be given the vote, which was standard in European democracies at the time. And prime minister to leap in, the Tsarist regime would attempt to walk a tricky tightrope. Reform without revolution, suppressing dissident groups through a combination of repression and concessions. It might look on the surface like the October Manifesto was a step towards establishing a constitutional monarchy, and in the eyes of Russian liberals, dragging the state into line with the rest of Europe. But there were some clear flaws – the Duma could suggest laws and had to approve them, but the Tsar retained a veto, so they could never do anything he didn't like. He still had ultimate power, and as it turned out, this included the power to dissolve the Duma whenever they had a major disagreement. It seems clear that the Manifesto was not a positive commitment to establishing a constitutional monarchy, and instead it was a political tactic to head off the imminent revolution. But in this aim, it was very successful. The Manifesto was met with enthusiasm in Russia's cities, and the majority of strikes abated. Those that continued were brutally suppressed by the Tsar's armed forces. It was clear that enough people still believed in the Tsarist regime, especially with liberal reforms, to prevent its collapse, at least for now. The Bolsheviks rejected the October Manifesto and the Duma that followed. They became ever more convinced that the path to revolution was through a small armed group seizing power and toppling the Tsar by force. At the Fourth Party Congress in Stockholm, Stalin attended, leaving the Russian Empire for the first time in his life. There he was a vocal and outspoken proponent of the Bolshevik point of view, even as Lenin began to try and reconcile the two wings of the party. Perhaps in recognition of the opportunity they had missed out in in the 1905 revolution, which no longer seemed likely to topple the czar. One of Stalin's many duties as a Bolshevik was to organize expropriations or bank robberies, and Stalin continued this activity even after it was banned by official party congress, due to Menshevik disapproval. It's not too hard to imagine a flash of the boy who'd idealized the Georgian abrek's bandits, who lived on in their current, who lived on their cunning, stole from the rich and distributed to the poor. Still remained in Stalin as he relished the work of planning bank robberies. In the most famous such incident in Tbilisi, the Bolsheviks robbed the Russian state bank in Yerevan Square. Stalin was key in organising this. In fact, he got the schedule from when cash was transferred to the bank by stagecoach from an old school friend, who said later that he only helped out because he liked Stalin's romantic poetry. So if you want to rob a bank, write a sonnet first? When a stagecoach loaded with rubles approached, a gang of robbers hurled grenades at the coach, killing the driver and some of the armed guards. Still more revolutionaries started firing at the Cossacks, These were the rough horsemen who were symbolic of the Tsarist Depression. At the end of the carnage, 40 people lay dead, and the bandits had made off with 340,000 rubles, which is around $3 million in today's money. Sources differ about what Stalin was doing. And naturally, like everything about the less well-documented early revolutionary stage, it's hard to tell the truth from propaganda. One of his pet writers said that he was the first one to hurl a grenade at the carriage, but that's probably not true. In all likelihood, he didn't fire a shot but there are descriptions of him supervising the robbery from a nearby cafe, in one account, calmly smoking a cigarette, which also seems like the kind of story that Koba would like you to believe. Around this time in 1906, Stalin met a young lady called Ketevan Svandiza, and within a year they were married. Despite his atheism after dropping out of the seminary, Stalin agreed to a church wedding for the sake of traditionalism. Depending on who you believe, they might have got married because Ketevan already knew she was pregnant with Stalin's first son, a boy called Jakob, who was born in 1907. As with so many significant women in history, it's difficult to find much information about Keteman. It does not seem likely that she was attracted to Stalin because of his politics, although some Marxist theory did preach equality of the sexes, at least in theory. In Chinua Achebe's wonderful poem Vultures, which I urge you to read if you haven't already, he beautifully illustrates the concept of moral ambiguity. We have the hindsight of history. We know what Stalin did and what he became, that he was responsible for the deaths of millions of people. There are many historical figures like this. It's easy to divorce them entirely from their personal lives and look only at their horrendous actions. It's easy to imagine them as always displaying this cold, calculating, psychopathic persona. It's also extremely dangerous to presume that evil is always going to present itself in an obvious way. If we paint history and historical figures with too broad a brush, we won't recognise when similar figures rise again. So it's important to note the human side of his character. Stalin's friend at the time commented, I was amazed how Soso, who was so severe in his work and to his comrades, could be so tender, affectionate, and attentive towards his wife. End quote. It seems like they were very much in love, but Stalin didn't let family life keep him away from his burgeoning career as a revolutionary. Travelling to London for the Fifth Party Congress, which was marked by tensions between the Bolshevik and Menshevik factions, shortly afterwards, in November 1907, just over a year after they were married, Ketevan died of tuberculosis. At the funeral, Stalin apparently said to a boyhood friend. Quote, this being softened my heart of stone. She's passed away, and with her have gone my last warm feelings for people. He pounded his chest and said, In here, everything is so empty, so unutterably hollow. It's tempting for a die romantic like me to suggest that this is the turning point in Stalin's life, when whatever empathy he'd had was snuffed out, and the final nail in the coffin of his personality was hammered home. It's clear that he was deeply shaken by her death. But at the same time, it's not like he turned his back on revolutionary life to raise a family only to have his hopes cruelly dashed. While his wife was at home, he was risking his liberty, and theirs, to pursue his political goals. So although this episode in his life probably helped isolate him, as any tragic heartbreak will, it's a stretch to say that it turned him into the compassionless man he later became. If it was not already fully built, this was just another brick in the wall. And nor did he let his infant son get in the way of his revolutionary activities. The infant son was left with Ketavan's family, Simon Bolivar, the South American revolutionary, was heartbroken when his first wife died and swore that he'd never marry again, and he didn't. Although in Bolivar's case it probably wasn't his last intimate relationship, I think he has a better claim to the idea that cruel fate broke my heart and now revolution is my only true love. After all, a couple of years later, Stalin was having affairs with local girls, adolescents, and at least in one case, leaving another son behind. The next few years were spent in Spain, in and out of prison, escaping in disguises and under different identities, never staying in any one location for too long. The prison sentences were usually cut short by escapes. As the Russian Tsarist state staggered onwards, attempting to right itself with the reform, the internal squabbling between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks continued. By 1912, any attempts at reunification were abandoned, as Lenin split his wing of the party off entirely. Stalin, who was starting to rise in Lenin's favour, was ordered to go to St. Petersburg, where he briefly edited the Bolshevik newspaper Pravda, which means The Truth. It was around this time that his primary pseudonym became Stalin, which means Man of Steel in Russia. A slight abandonment of his Georgian heritage, maybe, for political reasons. Although Lenin was less so willing to work with the Russian parliament than his Menshevik foes, Stalin was in charge of coordinating the activities of the six Bolshevik deputies that were elected to the Duma. Throughout his time in St. Petersburg, though, he was pursued by the authorities. The Okhrana had infiltrated the party far enough to realise Stalin's increasing prominence, And in 1913, he was arrested once again. This time, though, the exile to Siberia stuck, and it would be four years before he was released. In 1917, that most fateful of years for Russia. Now, when I first learned about this, and I always used to imagine Russian revolutionaries being exiled to Siberia under the Tsar, I had an image in my head that they were in some kind of icy prison camp, thousands of miles from civilization, constantly guarded, and with little hope of any escape. The reality was a little bit different. One or two revolutionaries would be sent to a remote village, in Stalin's case in Tuokansk district. There they were, well, more or less left to their own devices. They rented rooms with local villagers and families. They regularly met with other revolutionary exiles to discuss the finer points of their ideologies and what they were going to do once they escaped. The authorities relied mostly on the extreme conditions to keep them in place, the nine-month winters, the incredible remoteness of the locations. There were no railways and no rivers nearby to make you escape, set out alone, and you'd almost certainly perish in the attempt to reach civilization. It's difficult for us in the modern age, I think, to imagine communities remote enough that simply being there was an effective form of imprisonment, but it was effective enough to contain Stalin and his fellow revolutionaries for years. Stalin, who was probably over his wife at this point, promptly moved in with a local family and impregnated their teenage daughter. The money he was able to provide to the poverty-stricken family entitled him, at least in his own mind, to take whatever he wanted and treat them with complete contempt. Many of the villagers were impressed to be in the midst of a famous southerner and revolutionary. Stalin's Siberian exile was not altogether unpleasant. He spent time hunting, fishing and writing endless letters to party comrades back home, more often than not asking them for financial support. With the post being delivered once a month, if at all, it was difficult to stay at the forefront of political developments in Russia. So, as much as he might have enjoyed aspects of Siberian lifestyle, he get the sense he was counting down the days until he could return to the thick of the political fray. It must have been especially frustrating to be so isolated when the First World War broke out in 1914. Towards the end of his exile, Stalin was nearly conscripted into the Russian army, which maybe gives you an indication of how desperate they were for soldiers, but he managed to get out of it. The reason? Well, remember that cart accident I told you about right at the start? It had left his arm permanently damaged, and the injury was severe enough that the army doctors didn't allow him to serve in the armed forces. Again, it seems like a small event had severe consequences. Just as in the case of the Russo-Japanese War, military defeat exposed the weakness in the Tsarist government. The shortages of food caused by the war stirred up popular discontent. In reality, despite Nicholas and Stolypin's best efforts, the issues that had plagued Russia had not been fixed in the years of reform since 1905. By 1917, six million Russian soldiers had become casualties. The war looked unwinnable. Vast swaths of Russian territory were occupied, and morale was at rock bottom. Worse, the Tsar, in an attempt to be decisive, had taken personal control of the army in 1915. Its defeats were therefore directly linked to his failures, and his wife was left in charge. She was unpopular for various reasons. A good dose of historical misogyny, sure, but also her German heritage and the fact that she was deeply influenced by one Grigory Rasputin. Yes, Rara Rasputin, alleged lover of the Russian Queen. Nicholas II's son was a haemophiliac. Doctors could do very little to help him, but the influence of Rasputin, a holy man from Siberia, seemed to help the boy. Rasputin ended up in a position of a lot of significant influence and power, much to the annoyance of other royalists. He was apparently rude and uncouth, but it's clear that a lot of the aristocrats who surrounded Nicholas resented that this peasant had gained such a position of prominence. I mean, remember everyone being so mad at Cleander that Commodus had put into charge? Their displeasure with the Tsar was made clear when a conspiracy of noblemen assassinated Rasputin. It's possible that his significance gets overplayed because he's such an interesting character, and such a compelling myth has grown up around this wild-eyed faith healer from the steppe. As you can see, I couldn't resist talking about him too much either. But the fact that the aristocrats would murder him showed that they'd lost faith in the Tsar's judgement. Even liberal reformers had grown frustrated with the Tsar constantly dissolving the Duma whenever they disagreed with him. At the start of 1917, St Petersburg was just waiting for a spark. Next episode will track Stalin's career through the tumultuous revolutionary year of 1917, A hundred years ago as I write this, Russia was about to undergo one of its most politically eventful years ever. It makes modern political drama seem light by comparison. An autocracy that had lasted for hundreds of years will be overthrown. A democracy will attempt to thrive in its place. Two revolutions in the space of a year will rock a country to its core. Although our focus is on Stalin, I think it will be informative and interesting to look at the Tsar as well. After all, here's another autocrat being overthrown and replaced by a democratic system. So it's linked to our central theme. And it's just really, really fascinating, so I hope you don't mind me bibbling about it for a little while. We will, of course, also track Stalin through this fateful year. This will see a transformation in his fortunes. He started the year as a minor revolutionary, exiled in distant Siberia, in a small, splintered political party. He would end it as a minister in the new government of the Russian Empire. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at autocracynowpodcast.wordpress.com. You can subscribe on iTunes. Please rate us and leave us a review and tell all of your friends so that as many people can hear this as possible. And if you want to donate money to us, that's fine as well. <laughs> if you have any questions, you can email us. Uh, the details are on the website. Um, our theme music is A Spirit of Russian Love by Zinadia Trokai, and you can find her work at costatea.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, have fun.